Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Marshall Gallagher. If I haven't met you, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Community Church, and we are uh, in the last two sermons of Nehemiah uh, that we've been kind of studying through, walking through, uh, reading through since uh, for like five months. So good job, everyone. I know you don't really have a choice, but I figured I'd congratulate you on making it uh, here to the finish line. Um, so we're going to be in Nehemiah 13, 4 uh, through 14 this morning. So if you want to start turning there, uh, and if you are looking for a Bible, need a Bible, there should be one either under your seat or uh, close by under one of the seats in front of you. Um, and, and I wonder if anybody in the room uh, is handy. Like, would you consider yourself handy? Maybe you don't consider yourself handy at all. Um, but I, I'd like to think that I'm a little handy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that'll, that'll depend on, on, you see, the work that I've done, maybe. No, uh, maybe like a six out of ten handiness, right? Like, uh, we just moved into a new house if uh, over close by, and it's a very, very old house. And you can tell someone like me tried to fix a lot of parts of the house. Uh, and so I'd say about six of ten, like, I can install a disposal, but like I could never start to redo a kitchen. Like I'm somewhere in between there. Um, I think like 10 of 10 is like that like good old neighbor who you just, somehow he knows how to fix everything with like gum and a screwdriver. Uh, but, but so I, I, my best friend in many situations are the things that are pretty much made for guys like me who just need to patch stuff up, right? Like Gorilla Glue, anybody fans of Gorilla Glue? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that'll, like, keep a car together. I have put Gorilla Glue on a car, actually. Uh, or, like, there's this stuff called uh, Great Stuff. Not very creative. That's not really the handyman's trade. But it's foam that if there's a gap anywhere, you just spray this stuff in a gap, and it just fills the gap. It's just great stuff. And it will not come off of anything ever. Like, I think they even started making like a great stuff remover the same company realized they created a problem uh or caulk like there's hundreds of different kinds and basically you could almost keep a whole house together this church is pretty much held together by just wisely placed caulking everywhere things like that so uh i love that kind of stuff um and it's because i'm really not that great at fixing things uh, I'm not necessarily confident when the job is done, more of like a, eh, that'll hold <laughs> kind of thing. And, and that is so much of what uh, the, this new house that we moved into is like. Um, but I, I love patching things. Um, and I, really, it's because like I'm good at identifying like little things that are broken, like little gaps, little things that need to be patched over. And I don't know if anybody likes that. Maybe just in your job. I mean, it has nothing to do with handiness. You're, it's like, yeah, I love like seeing a little problem and fixing it. And maybe it's coding or maybe it's just like a financial kind of situation that you need to figure out. Uh, it could be like a medical diagnosis, anything where it's like, oh, here's a little problem uh, and I need to just kind of repair this problem and, and the, the joy that comes from like just fixing little things here and there. Um, and I feel like as we've gone through this book, that, that's what Nehemiah has had to do. Like literally for a wall, 
He's had to just patch it, make it work, fix it, make it work. And in Ezra, kind of the mirroring book to Nehemiah, it was, well, look at this messed up temple. It's never going to be as good as Solomon's temple, but, but let's kind of patch it together and make it work and set it up. Um, and so, I, you know, I think I like that because it's really, really difficult to just totally wipe something out and start fresh, right? It's much easier much more doable to just kind of fix it enough to keep moving forward. Um, and, and that's really what Nehemiah has done, and especially Nehemiah 13, that's what we're going to see him do. So let's read the text. Uh, we'll start in verse 4. So that's Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests." While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials. I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers." Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, I ask uh, expectantly but humbly that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive your word this morning. Uh, thank you that we have been singing uh, truths about you already. Um, but Lord, if there's anyone who needs their hearts prepared uh, for your grace this morning, I pray that you would do that right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, obviously, uh, Nehemiah, I, I think he has been a great leader throughout this. And, and even through this book, uh, preaching through it, uh, I think this would be an awesome like leadership series on like biblical leadership, uh, not necessarily pertaining to all of us as the people of God, um, but it was pretty jacked up, right? Like, if you remember, right before this, 
We've just had like chapters of celebrating and all the people coming together and all the people worshiping and obeying the law and filling the storehouses and providing for the Levites. And it was this triumphant moment of everyone singing and praising and, and you know, obeying the law and f- literally doing everything that the people of God should have done. And so verse 4 says, now before this. And so you're wondering, like, uh, if, you're, if you're kind of following with the book, there comes an immediate problem with the whole timeline, right? And this has been a problem. You may have noticed it before. Like, wait a minute. When, when is this happening? It seems like this may be taking place differently than how it's being told. And here is the most clear, obvious example of, like, Okay, what, what's going on before this? What's this? Uh, and so I have saved all of us from a big, like, nerdy debate that's gone on for hundreds of years about Nehemiah. Um, and I'll get to why in just a second. But right here, uh, this um, seems to throw kind of a wrench in, like, well, when did this actually happen? And so some people think it was right after chapter 12 was over. They celebrate, they do all the wonderful stuff, and then Nehemiah leaves for a short period of time, and then they just things fall apart and crumble. Like right after they did all the things they should have, and it crumbles, right? And so that's like half of the like biblical historians think it went that way. Uh, the other half thinks now before this means before they celebrated all of this. Like before they went around the wall, building choirs, celebrating, worshiping, going through this whole process of of coming before the Lord, obeying the law, filling the storehouses, saying, well, before that happened, this is what happened. And that's about half. There's, you know, some debate in between. The problem is, is like if you're writing a commentary, you're going to say, I'm pretty confident this is what it is. So everyone, you know, has the right one which I think is, you know, obviously a big problem in all of, you know, academia or Christianity. It's like, well, I'm definitely right, so here we go. Let me explain it to you. Um, And you know what? This may surprise you. I'm not really concerned with which one is perfectly right. And and I don't think you necessarily should be either. Um, There's even like a way that this could be told often the Bible does it's not as like empirical and set up like kind of our western minds and thinking is necessarily uh, that we're taught things should go like well one then two then three obviously that's how you tell a story that's not always how the Bible is written and so it could be like hey yeah and we got home and the trip was great and then the next thing you write is like, oh, you know, before that, though, I left my phone in the Uber and it was this huge ordeal. And it's like, well, that's out of order. You're not being accurate. I can't trust what you, it's like, no, no, we're telling a story. And so what I do know, what I'm very confident in is that this is not written by mistake. And so if chronology is not clear, like, it's pretty obvious that it's, we're not really 100% clear. Then there must be something else going on. There must be something else that we should get from the text because the author wrote it the way that they meant to. 
So we believe deeply that this was not sliced and diced and just randomly put together to make sense. It's actually, I think, more authoritative that it doesn't fit so nicely. Like if a bunch of guys got in a dark candlelit room and decided to cut up these pages and and fit them together in the way that made the most sense, why would it not make sense? Why would something be so obvious that there's this question of what took place when and why are they doing that? It's likely because the author, the main point that they're trying to convey is not here's just a simple historical account of what happened. So what is the author trying to communicate? And so it's not, hey, let's forget it, let's avoid it. It's, oh, some, something, something else must be going on rather than just give me the facts and the accurate description of how this happened. And so I think what's going on is that we're supposed to read that Nehemiah is writing down how things happen. And I think we're supposed to come to the conclusion that he is hopelessly trying to patch up. As their leader who has done a great job, he's hopelessly trying to patch up what he needs to do to continue to fight and continue to keep God's presence there with the people. Like I think that's mainly what's going on. Nehemiah keeps needing to reform all of these things. He did the work, he built the wall, great success, but he, he needs to keep working on this people over and over and over again to ensure that God's presence remains there. That's why he built the wall, so that they would be safe for God's presence to dwell there. That's why in Ezra, they reconstructed the temple so that God's presence would be with the people And so instead of replacing it, instead of Nehemiah just burning it all to the ground and getting a new group of people, he decided to patch it. You can always patch something, right? And it'll work for a little while. But so let's let's look a little bit deeper at the problem. So if you look back at verse four, you see uh, before this, Elisha, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, who was related to Tobiah. Do y'all remember who Tobiah is? The Ammonite, the guy, he is the guy who said, oh, watch, a fox could jump up on that thing. It would crumble. He was one of the first enemies that gathered together an army to, hey, let's catch them in their sleep and let's murder all of them. If they build this wall, they're gonna become just a festering thorn in our side. Let's destroy these Jews. That was Tobiah. Related to Eliashib, the high priest. Spencer's gonna kind of close this out and, and the next section talks about Eliashib, the high priest, had appointed Tobiah a room inside the temple that was meant to hold the wine, the grain, the oil for the singers and the Levites and the gatekeepers, all these people who helped preserve the worship of God. And this guy kind of had like a man cave built out in the temple. 
what? It would be kind of like a, a KKK leader monument inside of the like, Museum of Civil Rights History. But even worse than that, the director of the museum was the one who put it there. Or like you go to D.C., you see a Holocaust museum, and there's this, this room dedicated to Hitler. That's what, would have, that's what it should have felt like. So when Nehemiah says, I was very angry, he's just soft-selling it. He should have freaked out. He kind of did freak out. I don't want to spoil next week, though. How could he not? Tobiah, he was an Ammonite. We just read how the people separated themselves, and if the timeline is kind of messed up, even before they said they would separate themselves, spiritually desecrating who they were by joining alongside their bitter enemies from hundreds of years ago. But so maybe Elisha is not this just evil, like Satan worshiper, right? I mean, I'd like if if you take like a charitable approach to Elisha, the the chief priest who oversees everything, maybe he did it for practical reasons. Maybe he got caught up with needing to control the temple and knew that he needed a really strong leader who had a lot of resources. Maybe it was pragmatism, right? He, he would keep his political power. Nehemiah left after all, right? Nehemiah went back. Verse six, it says, well, I, while this was taking place, I, that's Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. So he went back to Artaxerxes. Remember, he, he asked Artaxerxes to leave so that he could rebuild the wall. He did it. He went back. And it says, this is when this happened. So, you know, maybe Eliashib just said, you know, I got to protect my place in this new city. And things are not back to the way. Things are not stable. So I got to kind of play, I'll, I'll put Tobiah in. And, and he has this big army and people respect him as a leader. He's related. It's all intertwined and connected. Okay, or maybe it's just to protect his family. Maybe he's doing what's best for, for him and security and stability and comfort. I think that's where we see this connection. We may think Eliashib's evil is, is way outside of the bounds of anything we would ever, ever do. But at the root of it, it's just placing something else just right above where God should be. A space that ought to be devoted to the Lord. Devote to comfort. Devote to stability or safety. I mean, that could be money, that could be relationships, that could be social power, that could be ego, anything. That's the evil. And that's evil in me when I take something Likely it's something good, family, relationships, love. There's nothing wrong with safe, with feeling safe. But it, when I put that where God should be, it breaks down. It's like pouring diesel into a car that needs gasoline. Yeah, it'll, it'll go for a little bit. And it'll just shut down. 
that is the evil that Eliashib did. And then that's not, that's not all that happened. You look at verse 10. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levite singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So the Levites did not have all the things that would keep them able to continue to maintain worship in the temple. So he's saying, well, I mean, we're just supposed to be here and we're start. We don't have what, it, what we need to survive. So we got to go home because the people have stopped giving. They've stopped providing. And a couple chapters earlier saying, and this happens all the time with God's people. Yes, we're going to follow the law and we're going to maintain the temple. We're going to provide so that the Levites can, can lead us into worship, continue us in worship. And they stopped. So I don't know if it's like a slow thing, like, a, like, well, it's a big festival day tomorrow. We're really exhausted after all this. So, so just this one day, we'll just let it go. But then, I, you know, promise, I'm going to double down tomorrow and I'll, I'll, I'll give a double portion. Or, you know, Jerry over there forgot. He's really forgetful. I, you know, what can we expect from him? So somebody else, maybe they could supply what he should have. And it, maybe it just slowly trickled away to where everybody was like, oh, oh my gosh, was this my week to provide a grain offering? Oh, well, I don't know. Jerry last week didn't provide the grain offering. Sorry if your name's Jerry, but I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was just the, the kind of way that we naturally like forget to do stuff where it's like, ah, nobody's gonna notice this week. I mean, someone else probably will. The type A people, they'll like really remember and, and double. So maybe it's just a slow fade, right? Because I just, I don't think that humans have changed all that much, right? It may look different, but I, I think at our core, we're probably all pretty similar. But so they had, and, and this is, Nehemiah confronts the leaders who are supposed to be in charge of getting the people to do it. And he says in verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? Now, it's easy for us, I think, to think like, okay, temple worship, all these sacrifices, all these grain offerings, all this stuff in the temple. Like, that's just being too obsessed with like a building. But the, the temple was not just like a church today. The temple was the, again, the place where God's presence was. What you did for the temple was your devotion to God. And so when Nehemiah says, why is the house of God forsaken? He might as well be asking, why have you forgotten God? Why have you stopped following Jesus? Why have you turned your back on God and walked away? That is what the equivalent was. Sometimes it, I think we all kind of wish that it was just that easy with rules and things and regulations, right? We think to ourselves that we could well, if it was all lined out and it wasn't this whole, if you look at someone the wrong way, you're considered to be murdering them. Like that's intense, hard, right? Give me just rules and lists and I can worship God really, really well. Well, they had that. They had forsaken God. I mean, just think about this. You are back from generations of exile, the worst 
worst thing that could happen to you as a people. God, in your mind, has walked away from you because you have been so disobedient as a people. You have all this time, Isaiah, all throughout, you're making deals with other nations because you don't trust God. You're, you're joining into child sacrifice because you're worshiping the gods of the nations and then you get removed. Your whole city gets destroyed. It's in ruin. Remember, Nehemiah wept over this. And so your, your great-great-grandfather used to know what Jerusalem was like, but now you're back in this tattered version, a constant reminder of your people's disobedience and how you did what you shouldn't have done. And now uh, the leader leaves after a year and you're just right back into it? Like how worthless do these people have to be? They can't even keep it together. I mean, their whole surroundings are covered with reminders of what happens when you stop providing for the Levites who were supposed to guide the people in worship so that God's presence would remain active in the community. And they just let that go and they let an Ammonite come in and, and set up a bunch of furniture. Like, give me a break. These people are terrible. But, but I wonder if we're any different. Like how many times do we say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, okay, uh, I'm, I, I'm not doing that again. Or how, how many times have we needed to, as teenagers, go back to summer camp to recommit our life to Christ and walk forward, Right? Or, or, or how many times we say, you know what, I'm, this year's different. I'm, I'm getting into a prayer. I've, I got a prayer journal. I'm, I'm starting a new scripture reading plan. I, I'm, I've got this software. I'm gonna be accountable. This is different. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try harder this time. Well, yeah, like the, but like try harder, harder than last year. It'll be different. We just slide into the same patterns. Maybe we see a little bit of growth. I mean, maybe we turn a corner. We're the same as these Israelites. We are the same. And so I think if you're a Christian or non-Christian, I think we can all kind of agree that something's wrong, right? Like, do you ever feel that? Like, why do we keep doing, like Lent is a great example, right? I think it's like we're starting with Lent and at the heart of it, it's not a big deal. It's not like Lent's bad, non-Lent's good. But le- like you hear people talking about Lent where it's like, you know what? <laughs> During Lent, I'm just gonna stop shouting at my spouse. Or it's like, I'm gonna stop doing that terrible thing that I do most of the year, but for like a good month or two, I'm gonna just stop doing this awful thing that I know is bad for me or for others. Because I want to follow Jesus. There's something that gets attached to that, right? Because I want to follow God. I want to try kind of hard for a month and a half, but don't hold me to it. But I'm going to try really hard for a month and a half, and then I'll see if it keeps up. But like we keep inventing ways to just do more, do more, more rules, more structure. 
Romans 7.15, Paul says it this way, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For the good I want to, sorry, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Like, do we all connect with that? Whether or not you believe any of this stuff in the Bible, like, don't you feel that constantly? So what do you do, though? When something's broken, you, f- you fix it, right? You can always patch what needs to be replaced. That's what Nehemiah does. Right? So he evicts Tobiah. I kind of love this. Another discussion for another day, like what's good anger or not. (laughs) I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture, this verse 8, of Tobiah out of the chamber. I'm sure he probably lost it a little bit. I think we we can empathize with Nehemiah. But he literally is chucking furniture to the streets of Jerusalem, evicting Tobiah. And then he orders it to be cleansed and reset, right? Clear all the bad stuff out. Get all the good stuff in. Let's redo this thing. Cleanse the chamber. Reset it. I'm going to put you in charge now rather than this guy. Okay, we've, we've done it. We've patched the gaps, the holes, these pretty massive things, but we've, we've, we've repaired it. And then what does he do uh, in verse 11, right? Nobody's maintaining temple worship. So he says, all right, I confronted the officials. So why have you been doing this? And, and then he kind of systematizes and resets the structures and, and resets what should be going on and changes the leadership, right? Like he, he does a good job. I mean, practically, it's a really good, like I was saying earlier, really good template of kind of leadership. It's like, all right, go in, cleanse it out from top to bottom. You got to repair all these little points. You got to plug all these holes. You got to kind of patch up what was going on. We do it in the church. I mean, just over the last like 48 hours, two huge ministry leaders have been found to be uh, either abusive or fraudulent financially from like super conservative side and more like spiritually meditative, right? So you just saw on Twitter this explosion of like both groups that usually kind of attack one another are mourning that their, their leaders have failed once again. And so it's like, all right, cleanse out the organization. We gotta remove this person, put a better person on top, let's patch this, fill this hole, fill this gap. Okay, now, but let's keep going on. And and you know what? It's gonna happen in another month or two again. What what do you do? You you fix it, you patch it, you do all these things. And so you just readdress the issues, create new leaders, new elders, new deacons. I mean, it happens in churches all the time. It has for hundreds of years. When there's a problem, you fix it. And I think Nehemiah, deep down, knew what was going on. 
So, so look at verse 14. It seems like it's a little out of place at first. But look at verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. That good deeds is that word that describes God's love for us often. My hesed, my faithfulness, my steadfastness. God, just remember me and my commitment. What I have done for you. But how, how deflating. Like I think we finally get to see kind of this interior heart of Nehemiah. And and. Before when he prayed, he said, earlier he prayed, God, remember what Tobiah did against us. Keep track of this. When things snapped for him, he would call out to God and pray and say, God, hear me, hear this, see this, remember this. But how deflating must it have been? All of the, all the, these years, him being in exile and coming back. Ezra and Nehemiah looking at the temple, looking at the wall, this massive success that they had accomplished, sitting there mocking them because all the external things that they built victoriously changed nothing. Put yourself where Nehemiah is. He just resigns. He says, God, I, you know, he, he patched the issues, right? Like he didn't burn it to the ground. He did what he should have. And then he just comes to God. He says, you know what? Just, Lord, see me. Remember me for my commitment to you. This is all I have. I think he knew that all he was doing was patching. We see almost 500 years later, Tim read Passover, the biggest festival of receiving mercy and grace from God, and Jesus walks into the temple, and he sees people using it as an excuse to take advantage of the poor. Like, that's another awesome scene, too, where Jesus, like, hand makes a whip right? And the disciples are like, oh, guys, Jesus is uh, outside making a whip with his bare hands. Like I thought, Peter's probably like, I thought the whole walking on water was scary, but this, right? And maybe he, I don't know, he whipped animals, okay, like driving animals out. Maybe like a one jerk just got a lick in in the back, (laughs) I don't know. That's conjecture. 500 years doesn't fix this. Right? These external things are not the problem. I think the problem is is you can always patch what needs to be replaced. That's in all of our hearts. This idea that we can just try harder and do better, establish more structures. Well, we'll fix this. We'll, we'll clean it out. We'll, we'll put better leaders in and we'll, we'll have new rules. And this time, Lent's gonna be different. I'm, oh, I'm gonna get accountability buddies this time. That'll fix it. 
you know what, I know I said I'd never do this again, but dang it, this time, I'm, I, I, I swear I'm not going to do it this time. again. I'm not going to do it again. That's our problem. Is that we can always patch what needs to be replaced. Uh, Chip Dodd, who is a counselor who founded a, a great counseling ministry in Nashville uh, called Sage Hill. He, he said this, delusion is believing you can fix life if you try hard enough. Ouch. If I, just, if I just try hard, if I just grab tighter, if I just really, I'm gonna double commit. I'm gonna really, really try. And now I got Jesus on my side, so I have like superpower trying, and I'm just gonna try and try and try and try and try. Then life is gonna be better then I'm not gonna fall into the same pit I've fallen into my entire life. Then I'll get over what I got from my parents. Then I'll get past this. It's gonna, I gotta keep trying. I gotta keep climbing. I gotta keep pushing and pushing and pushing. I just need to patch these holes and, and okay, here's another one. I only patch it and put it together, but that's, that's the problem. We think we can keep patching when we need replacing. And so I kind of hope that you feel hopeless right now. Let me say that again. I kind of hope that you feel absolutely hopeless and powerless and discouraged and like you have nothing to offer to change all these things that you've been trying to do better at year after year after year after year. That's what Nehemiah felt. That's how this book ends. There is no bow to this book. It is sorrow and hopelessness and toil without any progress. That is one of the best places that you could absolutely be. That's why Jesus came. All the work that Nehemiah did to make sure that God was with his people went away. The second he took pressure off, the second he walked away, God's presence started to fade. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. That's why he knew that a temple that you had to come to, a mountain that you had to climb up to was never going to work for us. Because if you're honest, you can do all the exterior things. You can set all the exterior structures. You can get all the information, but you're still you. You're still broken. You don't need to patch things up. You don't need to find new programs. You need to be replaced. And God knew that, and that is what he's offering every single one of us. He's not offering that he'll finally give you the best kind of gorilla glue so you can start patching things together. He says, I have to give you life. I have to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh.
you need to be replaced. And I think we can get there and then ask, well, what do we do? And this is if you're Christian or not. The same way that you are saved is the same way you keep returning back to every single time. And every time you just think, I've got to just try harder and I'm gonna fix things, you're crawling back up onto the cross. You're taking Jesus off of the cross. You're trying to put something else there. Paul wrote an entire book to the Galatians about this. Trying harder, pushing harder, doing more is just patching what needs to be replaced. And so if you don't know where to go, if you don't know what to do right now, and you're like, okay, I I want that, I don't know what to do, ask. Ask me, ask any of us. I mean, that's literally my job is to help you quit trying to patch up this janky old house that is your life and just resign like Nehemiah did and say, God, I just need you to see me. I don't have any hope trying to fix all this stuff. I just, I need you to replace what's in here. You can always patch what needs replacing, but why would you? Come to Jesus who is offering to make you new. That's what he died and rose for, is to give you new life. And I mean, just think about the toil and all the energy that they spent to keep God's presence here. And she said, no, 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 no. I'm gonna put it in you. I'm, I'm gonna fulfill all this law. I'm gonna do all what it takes to manage and to keep me close to you. I'm gonna do all of it and I'm going to come live inside of you and be living and active. I'm gonna give you new life. I'm gonna replace all of this whole thing and I'm going to now dwell in you. I want my presence to be with you and I'm going to keep myself there. That's what I want to encourage all of us to do. Just resign to patching and let Jesus replace all of this mess in here. Let me pray. Lord, we need you. Not just to do better, God, Help us to just quit trying to do better. We need you to replace us. Every day we need you to take our hands away from things. God, it's exhausting trying to patch up pieces of our lives. Lord, so I ask for every person in this room that you would help us let go and trust you and rest to be healed by you to find joy in you to be repaired by you 
Lord, we're grateful for your presence. Help us see it. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.